Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. One other thing that Brian didn't know about, I received these uh, just this week, was um, we have our prayer guides for 2020 for the week of prayer. So there's a couple of things that happen throughout the, the uh, year, a couple of offerings that our mission partners take together. Um, one of those is, uh, is this whole idea of, of uh, praying for missions once in the spring during Easter. We pray for our local or national missionaries. And then during Christmas, we pray for uh, the international missionaries that we support, over 5,000 around the United States. And so um, just be aware of that. Just know that this is there as a prayer guide. As you walk out today, I would encourage you to take one of those. We don't actually take a physical offering, so we don't do like an extra offering for Lade Moon. That's what this is called. She was a missionary uh, overseas in China, or for Annie Armstrong. Um, we actually budget those, so we give a percentage. We give 1% of our entire budget to Annie Armstrong, to Lade Moon, um, because that's what we've done. Instead of just asking for offerings all the time, we're like, just give to the church and then we'll, send, we'll continue to give to the missionaries in support of what we do. And so there's, there's no additional offering that you have to give. Um, again, we'd encourage you just to continue to give through, through the local church of what we do. But this is a great guide. This also will point you to resources of what's happening around the globe. You know, it's easy to focus on what's happening in the United States, but God is really working around the world. Um, I mean, it's amazing what's happening, for example, in like the church in, in Iran. Uh, the church in Iran is exploding. People are becoming Christians at record numbers uh, in the history, that modern history that we have. And so that's pretty amazing if you think about it, that you have a nation that's predominantly controlled, literally <laughs> controlled by another religion, and these people are throwing that off to want to come to know uh, who God is through Jesus Christ. And so, you know, as we, as we kind of launched this morning, you know, just remember what our series is. Our series is that we're not ashamed of good news. We're not ashamed of good news. And so I just want to encourage you guys to know that, that the good news is going out around the globe, all over the place, and people, maybe not here finding it such good news, there are people around the globe that when they hear this good news about who Jesus is, about who God is according to scripture, when they hear the truth about the world they live in, and it clicks like, oh, wow, I understand this world now. Like, like, I've grown up and it's been a mess. Now I get it. I understand why it is what it is, and I'm thankful there's a way out through a relationship with God. When they figure that out, it becomes the best news ever, and their entire life gets leveraged around it, and they literally are willing to throw off everything to follow and pursue who Christ is. That, that's that's what's happening, and it's so easy for us to focus on ourselves, right? To focus on me, mine. And so what Paul's doing and what he's been laying out through Romans is teaching us how to focus on God and focus on others. He gets to these chapters, 9 through 11, where we've been recently, and, and Paul, through chapters 9 and 11, is laying out and even condemning his own family, to be separated from God for eternity. To, to be thrown off and thrown into the fire, as Jesus, we'll look at in a minute, even says. This would not have seemed like good news. We're getting ready to go to Thanksgiving and Christmas when you're going to go back to family and you're going to tell them things. You're going to, right now everybody's mad because they, they don't have the news they want, right? 
And so we, we tend to only tune into what we want to hear instead of trying to really dig for the truth. And, and Paul here is just laying out the truth, knowing that this is going to cost him. This ends up, what he teaches here in these three chapters, ends up being what kills him. See, the Romans weren't too mad at Paul for making people Christians because as people in Rome became Christian, they actually acted better. And he actually says in Romans 13 that they should submit to those rulers and authorities around them. And so the Romans are like, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we like this Christianity thing, so, you know. I mean, did the Romans totally like it? No. When, when Nero came to power and he wanted to be God, then he started slaughtering Christians. But, but at this time, the people that hate Paul are not the Romans. It's the Jews that don't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. They don't believe that this new thing that Paul is doing is true, and they're fighting against that. And in chapter 9, Paul says that he wishes he could... He could, he could accurse himself and be cut off and thrown into the fire from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen. In other words, Paul has such a compassion and a love for other people because of his understanding of who God is and because he knows what Jesus did to leave heaven itself, to come to earth, to pay the price we deserve. Paul's like, I, I wish I could do that, but I, but I'm, I can't. Like, like he did that, not me. And Paul, is, is, he's heartbroken in these chapters. And as we get to the end of chapter 11, Paul is making it absolutely clear. You ready for this? Tune in. That in his emotion, in his heartbreak, in his depression, in his, why, why won't they see? And I want my family to love God and have a relationship with them. And all of those things, he will not compromise. He won't compromise. And, 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 it's, and it's eventually what gets him beaten and thrown in prison, and it's only his Roman citizenship that doesn't get him killed on the spot. He gets to appeal to Caesar, which is why we have all these books written, is because Paul goes to jail to write books, to write letters to us, to the church. And that was God's plan. And if we remember, Romans 1, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's good news. Because it's God's power for salvation. That means we have to be saved from something. Most people think, ah, we're good. I don't need to really be saved. I'm not that bad of a person. Man, if you read this letter in Romans, you know that that's not what it lays out. He says it's salvation to everyone who believes. First, that's a key word there we're going to look at this morning. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness. In other words, how God makes people right. How he makes things right is revealed from faith all the way in the Old Testament to faith in the New Testament. Just as it is written, those who are righteous will live by faith. In other words, they don't live by the law. They don't say, well, I'm righteous, let me show you how. Here's all the things that make me right. Paul says the righteous won't do that. The righteous will say, here's the God that makes me right. Here's the God who's right. Here's everything that God lays out that says is right. And I know that stands in opposition to what you think and what you believe. And the reason I know it stands in opposition is because it stands in opposition to what I think and I believe too. And we have to agree that God is right and is righteous, not what I want to be right. And Paul is laying that out. And so he gets to this, this point when he's talking about the Jews and the fact that they don't know the Messiah. And he's brokenhearted and he's asking these hard questions like, what becomes of, of these people? And did God forget to, to honor them and to love them? And, and Paul's like, no. And he lays all this out. So this morning, this is what we're going to look at. This morning, not ashamed of first fruits. Not ashamed of first fruits. And you might ask, 
first fruits, what is that? Like, that's not a term we use often, right? We don't throw around the word, go into the grocery to get my first fruits, right? Like, well, you don't, you only have second fruits? Like, you're getting better fruits? Like, you know, the bananas, I don't know about your house, but when bananas go bad, we put them in the freezer. They're like the second fruit now, and then we use them for banana bread later. Like, you thaw them out and then use them in banana bread. You know, that's like, so you got all these old nasty brown bananas in the back of your freezer. Maybe you don't do that. That's what we do. You know, that's, that's definitely our second fruit. If I'm looking for a banana, I don't go in there and thaw that out and squish it out of the thing. Like, that's disgusting. That's, that's second fruit. Don't want it. I want first fruit, you know? And so Paul lays out this idea. We, looked, we finished last week in the first part of Romans, and Paul was talking about the, the, the centrality of the Scriptures. And you have to remember that the Scripture was the first fruit. That when the people left Egypt at Passover and they went out, they went through a season of what was called the Festival of Weeks. And it's kind of laid out like this. You have the Feast of First Fruits that happens during Passover. That's what happened when they were in Egypt. And then when they go out after 50 days, which is Pentecost, which is Shavat, or the Festival of Weeks, it's a countdown that the people would count down. Today, Jews do this. They count down to the moment of the, the, the culmination of the first fruits. In other words, it's when all the harvests come in. You see, the first harvest to come in that we look at is the barley harvest. That comes in in the fall, or in the, uh, in the fall, okay? And then you have the harvest of olives and grapes, and then finally you have the harvest of wheat. And each of these three festivals that the people would, would celebrate, Sukkoth, Passover, um, and Shavat, each of those you would bring first fruits. You're required to bring the first male animal of your flock. You're required to bring the first of the grain that you made and you were to bring it to God first. He gets first dibs, period. And what would happen often in this culture then is that everyone that was first or the first got more valued than the second. I don't know about you. I highly value banana bread over a banana. That's just me personally. Like if I had the choice and I'm looking at a banana or banana bread in the morning, I'm choosing a heavy slice of banana bread and saying, banana, it's got bananas in it. It's good for me. I love banana bread. It's like, now no nuts. I don't want any nuts or chocolate chips in it. That's a fight in our family. We don't do nuts, but the whole chocolate chip thing, no. No chocolate chips. I just want plain banana bread, okay? And so to me, it's like those nasty bananas in the fridge, I look in the fridge and see those and I'm like, oh, banana bread's coming. Like those are, those are, they might be second fruit. So it wasn't that first fruits were like more valuable than second fruits. Matter of fact, if you remember, we looked earlier in Paul's teaching, he was talking about Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament, the two brothers. Esau was the older brother who sold his birthright to Jacob, who was the second fruit, the second brother. And Jacob is the one that we trace all the lineage of Christ back to and the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's not that the, the second is less valuable. It was that God was saying, I want you to give your best, your first. That is what I desire. And so when he says, now if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What Paul's getting at is he's saying, who or what do you trust in that's at the basis of your life? that you're going to grow your life from. 
And in this, what Paul is saying is the Jews were growing their life, and we've looked at this through Romans, were trying to grow their life through the laws. If we just get the right laws and the right people in charge, then we'll be able to control everything and produce exactly the fruit we want where we want. And Paul is like, no, that's not the gospel. That's not what God presents. God says that he is the substance. The law reveals who he is, but what they did is they made a second route. So instead of the law being the thing that drew them to God and surrendered their life to God, they made the law God. In other words, it was the first fruits given to them, right? But they didn't use it properly. And God said, if you do this, I'm gonna, it's going to be a curse on you. And so what Paul is writing is he's saying, now the whole batch. So remember, the the children of Israel, they're delivered from slavery. They go out to Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. They're down below, and they are worshiping a golden calf, (laughs) another God, because God wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing fast enough. Didn't seem like he was solving the problem of the fact they lived in a desert, they couldn't eat, and they were getting a little frustrated, like, God, you need to come through, and Moses has been gone a long time now. Remember, we're counting 50 days Moses has been gone. 50 days. We've been in this pandemic, and we're getting impatient, and it's 50 days. And so they're like, forget it. We're just going to make a calf, and Aaron joins in, and they make a calf, and they begin to worship something God said not to do. They didn't wait for the first fruits. Then Moses comes down off the mountain with the first words of God, official chiseled in stone words of God. And he says, here's the first fruits. And when he comes down, he's so frustrated because he's like, you guys couldn't wait for God to give his best. You settled for second. Why? Is what God says. And so here you have Paul saying the first fruits. Now, what we know in scripture, and he says here that How do we become holy? If the root is holy, so are the branches. See, how do you become perfect or holy? Is it by following the law, by by staying in the branches of the 700 laws of the Old Testament, don't disobey any of them? Is that what? No, he's not. You see, what God says through Christ is that the law was to point us to our need for a Savior, our need for someone to step in our place, to be the first fruits for us so that we could be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus did. What's interesting about this whole festival of Shabbat and the whole idea of the festival of weeks and counting down, what's really interesting about this whole festival is that this was the festival where the book of Ruth would be read. To remind the people that God used a Gentile, not a Jew, to bring his Savior into the world because Ruth was not Jewish by birth. She was Jewish by commitment. She committed herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh. And then she married Boaz, who was committed to Yahweh, and she committed her life to Yahweh, and Boaz and Ruth had a son who was Obed, and Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had David, King David. You see, so when, even at this festival of weeks, it's, it's showing that, yes, you bring the first fruits, but it's offered to everyone, even a Moabite like Ruth, who doesn't deserve to ha- be grafted in. She doesn't deserve to get first dibs. She doesn't deserve to have her son in first place. But the kind of God I am, I want to give everybody my best. See, that, that's what God's laying out. And if you know anything about the New Testament, 
It was at the festival of the end of first fruits, the festival of weeks in Shabbat, where the nations came together in Jerusalem. They were there celebrating this festival. By the way, there were three festivals where men in the Old Testament were required to travel to Jerusalem with all the men were required to, think about that for a minute. All the men were to leave protecting their homes. Wives would have to figure out how to protect the home. And they were to travel and pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year and leave their homes completely wide open to the enemy. God said, trust me, have faith. That's scary in this culture. And so when Jesus dies, pays the price, he's resurrected, then he ascends to heaven and he says, I'm going to send another counselor, a first fruit. He sends the Holy Spirit at the end of first fruits. It's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into the disciples, the apostles, flames of tongues stood on their head, and when they spoke what? The good news. They weren't speaking gibberish. They were speaking about who Jesus was. And as they spoke, all the nations that were in Jerusalem believing that Yahweh was the true God, both Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, heard Peter and the other apostles speaking in their own language for the first time since the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. That God poured out his spirit in the hearts of men the first time, the first fruits. This is just the beginning of what God's getting ready to do to reach the world. And it's going to happen right here, right now. That's exactly what this represents. Look at what 1 Corinthians says. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul writes this book to the church in Corinth, a wicked church. <laughs> I mean, they had a lot of mess. This is his first letter. His first letter he writes to them is brutal. I mean, he is ripping them to shreds with this letter. And he's trying to get them to see the truth about who God is because they've been deceived in so many ways. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, sinning, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, that's Jesus. For as, all, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ means, the first fruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to the Messiah. Those who say, I need to be saved by him. There's nothing else that can save them. Then comes the end when, they, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. See, Jesus is coming, and, and he's not going to, like, come and rule the way we want him to. I don't know if you know that. He's going to come, and he's going to rule exactly how he said he would, not how we want him. We don't have a decision. We, we can't negotiate with him. There's no negotiation. And when you understand that, and you understand that not negotiating with him is actually good for you, it's a good thing, it's a loving thing, it, it puts everybody on an equal playing field, then it changes the way you do life. And he says he's going to abolish all rule and authority. You know, we, we keep going back in our country to the Constitution, right? It's the first fruits of our country. This is what the Constitution says. This is what the Bill of Rights lays out. Here it is. That's just the first, and it, it's not going to last because Jesus is going to come out, and he is going to abolish democracy. There's no voting. 
Again, I've said this multiple times in our church. I encourage you to find one time in Scripture where God's people voted and it worked well for them. Now, am I saying we shouldn't vote? Am I saying, no, it's better than the alternative, which is to be ruled by tyrants. Because that's the world we live in, a world ruled by tyrants. So I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's not my hope. It's not the thing that's going to save me. It's not the thing that's going to fix it, no matter who gets elected or who's in power. The person that's going to fix things is Jesus himself. And when I look and say, God, what do you want me to do in these circumstances? My job is to remind myself and remind others of the first fruits of God. Look at what Romans 11 goes on and says. It says, now if some of the branches were broken off, and you, through a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Do not brag that you're better than those branches. But if you do brag, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough. They were broken off by unbelief. But you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You see, what Paul lays out is he's gotten to this point in chapter 11 where people are starting to look and say, oh, see, it's all the Jews' fault. That's why we don't need to read the Old Testament law. We need to do away with all that stuff. We need to start over. It's the first fruits. We're all done. God's like, no, no, no. Not at all. He's looking and he's saying, You were grafted in. You didn't deserve to be a part. You weren't even a part of Abraham's family line, but God still offered you, like he did Ruth in the Old Testament, an opportunity to be adopted, to be grafted in, where you can graft a branch onto another branch. You tie it on. You cut a branch off. You tie it. It's a gardening technique. It's what they do for vines and branches to make different fruit. And God says, if he didn't even spare the Jews, do you think you can be spared by trying to follow the law, by doing all the right thing, by saying, I'm a good person? That's such an arrogant statement. Really, think about it. If you look at somebody and say, I'm, 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 just, I'm just trying to be a good person. I'm a good person. Take about five minutes and let the person tell you all you've done that isn't good. <laughs> right? It doesn't take very long. Oh, you're a good person, really. Yeah, it would have been nice if you would have put your dishes in the dishwasher instead of just leaving them in the sink for me to do it. Because a good person would have said, hmm, if I put the dishes in the sink, I'm expecting someone else to do it for me, so I'm not serving you. I'm saying, serve me. So that's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Just a real practical example. A good person doesn't sit and make demands on people. A good person serves and gives their life. Right? A good person doesn't expect to get, but expects to give all of themselves for God's glory. Because they know they'll get later, they don't need it now. They already have everything in him. You see, when we really look at this passage, and and Paul's saying, look, be careful, because what can happen is you can become very conceited to think, well, I've got the first fruit. I've got Jesus. He died, he was resurrected, and they don't believe, and man, I'm... And Paul's like, don't go there, because the second that you do... The second you lose that fear, right, that that fear, that subtle fear of like, oh man, you're in trouble. Now does that mean we need to be afraid that God's going to cut us off? No. No. We'll look at that in just a second. That's not what we need to be afraid of. The question is, have you been grafted in? 
Have you been grafted in? Or are you like growing with another tree and looking at God and saying, approve our branch, approve our vine? And God's like, no, it's going to burn. You need to be grafted in, which means I have to cut you off, which means you have to risk death. Like if you're cut off from the branch you're a part of, that means you're now a dead branch. Unless the person who cut you off can bring life to you again. That's what it means. And that's what Paul is laying out. And he's saying the Jews came from the right root, but because of their unbelief, their their unwillingness to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they've been cut off. Romans 11 goes on. It says, therefore consider, look at this. He, he, He wraps it up and he says, for God did not spare the natural branches. He won't spare you either. And then he says, therefore, there's a therefore for a reason. He's coming to the end of this teaching, the last three chapters. He says, therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. In other words, get the full picture of who God is. Most of us want to live in one of those two camps. We either want to see God as this big mean guy in the sky and he's you do this and you do this or we just want to see him as like grandpa god we come and get candy he sends us home and we puke in our toilet at home right with our parents that's what we want to see we want one or the other we don't want like a scary grandpa right like a grandpa that's going to like discipline us he has permission to maybe spank us he's got like mom and dad are like grandpa's the authority you're gonna have to like we don't want that right and, and God's saying, first, focus on my kindness. None of us deserve any of God's kindness, not one bit. But don't forget the severity of not embracing who I am. And he says severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. He's saying, look, if you're here, it means you haven't fallen. It means you're, you're, you're striving to say, I'm connected. I want to be a part. So he's not talking about you. He's asking you to look at the kindness that he says he wants you to remain in his kindness to see who he is because you know who you aren't. And he says, if you can't see that, then you'll be cut off too. In other words, if you say, well, God's okay with this sin. He's okay with that. He doesn't mind if I do this. This is no big deal. If you start saying those things, you better check your heart because all the laws of the Old Testament were kind had a conversation with a parent this week. I asked them this question. They were talking about their, not someone here, it was someone I know far away. They had called me, we were having a conversation about parenting. And, and I just asked them a question. I said, so do you think that stoning children in the Old Testament was a good law? Yeah, that's pretty much what I got on the other end of the phone too. Because it's there. It's in the Old Testament. Now, it wasn't you get to just stone your kid, you know, like you have stones laying next to your recliner and son walks through and you're like, bing, ha ha, that was not how it worked, okay? Like that's cruel and mean. But do you believe that the process for that was that you tried to discipline your son, the family tried to discipline your son, then you would bring them to the community and to the elders. The elders would ask your son or your daughter to repent and if they didn't repent, they, they carried through on the consequences, You see, here's the deal, and I've said this before. It doesn't take too many kids getting stoned before all the kids start going, "Uh, let's not do that. Remember Bobby? Don't, Don't be like Bobby. He's dead. Like, that's not a good idea. 
And it's kind because if you have a bunch of rebellious children running around who don't know, understand severity and kindness, then they either act in severity towards people or they just act in kindness and have no power to change anything. And that's exactly what Paul is laying out here. He's saying, lean into God. Believe that what he says is true and good even when it's hard. This is what Jesus said in Luke 3, 9. He said, even the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the words of Jesus early in his ministry. This is Luke 3. This is like at the beginning. He's like, oh, you're going to be cut off and thrown in the fire. What the? I thought you were nice and kind and wonderful. I am nice and kind and wonderful, and I'm very truthful. This This is the picture of what we have in Scripture. See, we don't like this Jesus. Right? We just want the kind Jesus. Or there are people running around who just want the severe Jesus. He's going to come back and he's going to judge the world and he's going to get that other party in power. He's going to put them in their place for the way they don't do this or do that or I'm going to get them. Like, really? No. We submit to him. He goes on. And in John 15, Jesus lays what Paul's teaching out very quickly very clearly for us because see there's a difference you ready for this there's a difference between being cut off and thrown into the fire and being pruned pruning is a good thing you cut off the dead so that new stuff can grow God prunes us and it feels like we're dying sometimes when I worked for the tree service when I first went into ministry and was raising my support to go do campus ministry I had to work in one of the most dangerous jobs trimming trees off of high power lines Okay, so I'm traveling in a truck and branches are coming down. I put a two-inch thorn in my calf, buried it about two inches deep and had to go have it surgically removed. Like, it's a dangerous job. You can be electrocuted, like stuff falls on you. It's chainsaws all the time, you know, people get their legs cut off. It's crazy. The reason I got the job was because the guy that I got hired in his place threw a branch into the chipper. That's that big machine that can chew a person up and spit them out because it could take a branch that big. He threw it in and it came out hit him in the face, knocked him out, knocked his teeth out, and he was unconscious, and so he couldn't work for a while, and so they hired me in his place. Welcome to your job, okay? And we would prune trees for 10 years. Our goal was when you cut a tree, you wanted 10 years of clearance. And let me tell you, when we got done with trees, people got really mad because it didn't look pretty for the next year. It looked awful so that you didn't have any branches getting into the power for 10 years. So it had like a giant V in it, right? You're like, that is the stupidest looking thing. Are you spelling YMCA with the tree? What are you doing? We would come through with pine trees and we just whack one cut right in the middle. You have this beautiful, perfect Christmas tree and we just go whoop and cut it right in the middle and throw it up. And they're like, oh, we're like, sorry. The law states that we have a right to 10 feet around the power line and actually 50 feet if we want to clear it. But we're being nice to trim instead of just clear everything out. That's what the law states. You see, pruning can be a good thing because if you don't prune, you know what happens? California wildfires. We don't want to prune anything. We don't want to cut anything down. Then you're going to be in trouble when a fire starts because there's lots of kindling. And there's no power because it's going to kick out immediately. As soon as a branch falls on it, it kicks off the breaker and now they got to come... Like, And when people didn't want to have their trees trimmed, you know what we told them? That's fine. We don't have to trim your trees. But you'll receive a bill when the power goes out for your entire community if it's on your property. All the trucks that come out, any fire department, any 
extra overtime for us to come cut the tree down. That's all on you, and you'll receive thousands of dollars of a bill at any time. They can sue you. Uh, okay, yeah, you can cut it. Go ahead. <laughs> like, so when Jesus is laying this out, he says in John 15, I'm just going to read through this. I'm not going to break it all down. Just listen to the words of Jesus. This is at the end of his ministry. He's trying to get his disciples to see, look, Luke, or he's looking at Peter, he's looking at John, he's looking at his disciple, and he's saying, look, I'm not trying to cut you off from me. I'm trying to keep you close to me. But if you're close to me, I'm going to prune you. And so, so here's the analogy he uses. I am the true vine. In other words, there are false vines. There are false roots that aren't holy that you can try to build your life on that aren't going to lead to where you want it to lead. My father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Because that's how you produce more fruit on a vine. Is if it grows out, then that vine is spending so much energy trying to just keep that branch alive that it's not producing fruit on the end of it because it's using up all the energy before it gets to the end. So you prune it back so all the energy goes into the fruit. It's a shorter branch so that you have more fruit. That's what he's saying. And he goes on, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. In other words, this isn't about you saying, well, I might be cut off. No, you're already mine. You're already grafted in if you know me. He says, remain in me and I in you. In other words, this is a no-brainer. Just stick with me. And then he says, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. Did you ever as a kid try to take a branch off a tree and like replant it in the ground and like water it and see if it would grow again? Like, did you ever do that? Like, I did. You know, I think every little kid tries to do that at some point. You know, I'm going to make this thing grow. And, and it, it doesn't grow. It's not at all. And, and it's the same thing. He's like, so then he goes on. And, and you got to remember, when Jesus starts this teaching, he starts in John 14, and he says, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God and also in me. My, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If there weren't, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. He goes on, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. But you can do nothing. Without me. He doesn't say you can do some things. He says, without me, it doesn't matter. You're not producing fruit that lasts if you don't know me, if it's not about a heavenly kingdom that's coming. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. He goes on and he says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Now we look at this and say, So I can ask for a Ferrari? Awesome. God, I want a Ferrari. Going to sit in my garage? No. What he's saying is, if you remain in me, the prayers you pray will be prayers you see in Scripture. The prayers you pray will be the prayers that I give you to pray. Like, it'll be a relationship, not I separate myself off and I go, ooh, that, that tree over there has a Ferrari. You don't give me Ferraris. I'm going to go get a Ferrari. Give me a Ferrari from that tree. Jesus is like, that's not the fruit we're talking about. We're not talking about Ferrari fruit. We're talking about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You wanting a Ferrari is probably not self-control. Just say it. Probably not. Maybe it is. I don't know. Because maybe you, you know, we're going to buy a, an island. I don't know. I mean, you settled for a Ferrari. He goes on and he says, 
As the Father has loved me. Oh, wait, so he goes, my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit. Well, what fruit is it? Again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit that, that changes lives. He says, if you keep my commands, oh, and you prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. It's about remaining in his love. And when we read remaining in his love, it's his whole love. The hard side of love, that's like, you can't do that. I'm not going to let you do that because I love you. And the other side of love that says, I know you did that and I forgive you and I still love you. That's the love of God. But he doesn't say, I just want to love you, so do whatever you want. I just want you to be happy and I just want you to think I'm a good guy. See, that's what we do in our world. That's the way we do relationships. God doesn't do relationships that way. He goes on and he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain just as I have kept my father's. In other words, Jesus didn't break a single command. He goes on, I've spoken these things to you. Look at this. So that your joy, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He's like, if you want pure joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the spirit, then you remain in me. He's saying, I've spoken these things to you so that you can see what real joy is because this world is full of false joy. You want to know how I know? When was the last time you bought something thinking this is going to, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to make me feel better. And it did, right? Like when you click the Amazon cart and you waited for it and you were tracking it and it came to the house and you're like, oh, yes, hallelujah. Oh, I saved up. This is so wonderful. And then it breaks. Do you still have joy? Are you like, yes, I'm so pleased that it lasted a week. Praise the Lord. No, you're mad because it's not lasting. And God is saying, I want to give you joy that's lasting. And the things of this world, you can be happy about them. Guess what he goes on? He says, this is my command. Love one another as I've loved you. In other words, the way I've loved you. Don't love the way you want to be loved. Love the way I say to love. And then he says, no one has greater love than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. We are all about getting our rights, not giving them up. Jesus gave up his rights to deity and was crucified on our behalf. It didn't mean he got rid of his rights. He just didn't lead with those. He led with, I will die for you. Now, do you believe I'm right? And that's what we do. We, we lay down our life and you say, do you see that God is right yet? Do you not see? Now, that doesn't mean we take abuse and just keep taking, taking, taking because, well, we think we're more righteous if we get abused. That's sick. No, not at all. That'd be like cutting fingers off because God's going to love me more if I take my pinky. Oh, the index finger. God will really love me if I take my index finger. Like, no, that's just mutilation. Like, Like, God says, I want you to understand what real love is. And then he goes on. He says, you are my friends if you do what I commanded you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. When Jesus died on the cross, he said to the world, anyone who wants to come can come. I'm open for all. Guess what? He was also open for all in the Old Testament. They had to be willing to come on his terms, and today we have to be willing to come on his terms just like they did back then by faith, not to get something, but to say, you're God, I'm not. Then he says, 
I appointed you that you should go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give you. This is what I commanded, you love one another. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it. Now the world hates you. You see, when we don't need the things of the world for our joy, for our happiness, and then we can't be manipulated and people get really mad. When people can't manipulate you, it makes them really ticked off. Versus saying, this is just what God's word says. I'm not gonna manipulate. Do you believe this or don't believe this? That, that's just so, ugh. Can't we negotiate? Can't we fit? No, I'm just, I'm laying this out. And I could be wrong and I could suffer the consequences from being wrong, but you have to admit you suffer the consequences too. Like, I, This is just how I see it. And if I'm wrong, help me see that I'm wrong. Like, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're not of the world. In other words, this isn't our permanent home. Heaven is. Romans 11 goes on and says, so that you will not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away the godless from Jake, godlessness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when, they, when I take away their sins. So, so again, Paul's saying, God is not like done with the Jews. Listen, if you're here today and you think God's just done with me, I can't, I can't ever be grafted in. I'm just going to the fire. It's gonna be burned up. It's not what Jesus says. It's not what Paul says. That's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't believe the lie. But Jesus says right here that a liberator's coming. You can, you can choose to repent. You can choose to put faith in him. You can not be conceited and say, oh, I'm okay, I'm, I'm good. I, no, don't do that. Don't be proud and conceited. Don't let your heart become hard, which is what Paul's been laying out. And what the Old Testament shows us is how hard-hearted the Israelites were. And every time God would give them a law, they were like, Ugh, uh, and they would just get harder and harder in their heart. Instead of saying, wow, that's probably a good law, we should do it. Man, God must love us if he's telling us what he wants us to do. That's really nice of him. He goes on, Paul says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. In other words, the Jews have become enemies for your advantage. So that you can see clearly what a hard heart looks like and what missing the mark looks like so you don't miss it. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. In other words, that God is, in his sovereignty, he's given his first fruits to Abraham, Jacob, David. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, in other words, God is still blessing Abraham to this day. God is still calling people to himself from Israel and from the Jews. God is still calling people. Like God hasn't given up. He's still being gracious to his people. They're irrevocable. God doesn't like say, well, I'm done now. No. They've chosen to harden their heart. They've chosen to have unbelief. They've chosen to stand up, but I continue to be a blessing. The Israelites are back in their land again. That's crazy. You're used to that. You realize that that didn't happen until the 1940s and 50s that they came back to their land. They had been out of their land for 2,000 years. Yeah, it's crazy that God's still being faithful to his promises even when they're not faithful 
themselves. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. In other words, because of their disobedience and you seeing and reading the scriptures and understanding how broken and sinful we are, that the law doesn't save us. When you understand and watch their disobedience and the mess they made of their lives, it causes you to seek God for mercy. Because I'm no better than they are. Then he says, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also now may receive mercy. Now they see us, right? They see Christians, they see believers acting biblically, understanding what the Old Testament's about, the feasts and how they point to Jesus. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus, and now they're being convicted about, maybe that's true, maybe he is the Messiah. Then he goes on, he says, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. In other words, we're all in the same boat. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Gentile, whatever. We're all in the same boat if God doesn't save us. And then he goes on and he says this, James says this. James, one of the apostles, says, don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. God is calling us his first fruits. You may be the first believer in your family who's truly understanding and walking with God. The first fruits. You may be the first fruits as it relates to to multiple things that God is doing that he says, I want you to see that I, I want you, you're, you're first to me. There's a personal relationship. You're not second best. You're not a rotten banana in the back of the freezer. If you know me, and yes, I'm going to prune you, and I'm going to grow you and produce fruit, and, and that's what it, but stay connected to me. And this has been offered to humanity, and Paul wraps up in Romans 11 with this. I love this. So Paul is wrestling with one of these like hard teachings that Old Testament, New Testament, how they fit together and the character of God and his justice and his wrath, his mercy, his kindness and his severity, right? He's, and look at what he does. At the end of chapter 11, before he makes a huge transition in chapter 12, this is what Paul does. He breaks out in worship. He, he, just, he just can't help himself. He's like, when he understands that he's an Israelite that had hardened his heart, and was killing Christians, and that God appeared to him, and he came to know him, and the forgiveness that he received, and the fact that he knew the Messiah, and his brethren didn't, all these emotions on Paul, all this stuff he's laying out in this moment, he just dumps out this hymn. Like God has him just sing this hymn, and here it is. He says, oh, the depths, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of it. Like, it doesn't matter how deep you go, God, he's just bigger than you could ever imagine. And he says, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Like he is far beyond us in our little peon heads. He goes, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? In other words, when you think you get to be repaid by God, you're not worshiping anymore. You're asking God to worship you. 
When you look at God and say, this is what I deserve, and you should be doing this, and this is, you're not in a position of worship. You're asking God to do your will, not his. That doesn't mean we don't pray and say, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand what is going on. This, I know this isn't your will. You can say all those things, but when you begin to make demands, you're telling God, you owe me. And that puts you in the position of God. And that's what every other world religion on the face of the planet does. Every other world religion is based on works where they look at God and they look at their fellow man and they say, I'm better. I'm awesome. I've measured beyond you. And when someone comes along that measures beyond them, you know what they do? They kill them. They don't go, oh, I should be more like you. It's like, "Mm, I don't want them to be better than me. So if I kill them, then I'm the best. That's the wars of our world. Even our own faith has that. And God says, look at this. Or who has ever first given to him and has been repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Paul could have ended his book here, but he's not done. (laughs) Because this is just the first fruits of the rest of the book. And he looks and he says, Paul is giving this incredible praise. And so here's the deal. At the end of the day, could you sing this hymn? Read back through it. Or do you fight this hymn? Do you look at God and say, where are riches? You don't help me understand anything. I'm sick of searching tired of these laws I have to obey. Paul's just amazed that he gets to be a part of a relationship with God. That his people rejected the Messiah and when they rejected the Messiah, the reality is they rejected the entire Old Testament law that was to point to him. Let me ask you this morning, Do you believe that God's offering you to be his first fruits, to be grafted in, to be adopted, to be his children, his sons and daughters, that there will be a pruning process that we die to the old branch and that God resurrects the new branch into a new line and then he begins to prune away the things that aren't of him. And he uses the church, the body of Christ and other people and even the world itself to help us prune ourselves. But the pruning is out of love so that we can grow fruit, we can be beautiful, we can make his riches shine. See, that's the message of Christianity. It's a message we need to hear today more than any other time because we've got people that are promising us first fruits and they can't deliver. They can't deliver. We're going to have a vaccine. We're going to... Maybe you may not be able to deliver. We all want to stand and say what we're going to do. Well, why don't you talk about what God's already done? And see, Paul's heart's broken because he says, my people don't even know what God's already done in his son. So I ask you this morning, are you ready to be his first fruits? Are you ready to believe that he was the Passover lamb and that We are counting down the day until he comes again to make all things make sense, that there won't be any more confusion like Shabbat and that he will bring his best and make a new world and the world will burn and he will grow a new tree. And actually in Revelation it says that there will be a tree again in Jerusalem and that the nations will come and eat of its branches forever 
and ever and ever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for the fact that you did all of this, that you were the first fruits. You chose to create us. We didn't choose to create you. That you knew that we would sin. You knew that we would go astray. You knew that we would do wild things and become wild branches, but you offer to to graft us in to your plan. Lord, I thank you that Paul lays this out so clearly for us and he ends with a hymn of worship to you that all the praise and glory and honor is yours. Lord, I pray that if anyone here doesn't understand who you are and what you did through bringing a Savior, Jesus, you are the Yahweh who saves, that they would commit their heart to you this morning. That they would understand the severity, but they would embrace your kindness. And they would see that you want to be kind to them in forgiveness. And that they would then open up their hearts and invite you in. Father, I thank you that these are the truths. Jesus, I thank you that you laid out in John 15 what this picture really looks like. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are being pruned right now. That, that, that it's kind of painful to feel that pruning process, to feel the cuts that go deep. And we might even think, oh, I'm dying from this. Lord, I pray that they would see that there's a harvest coming. That that as we allow ourselves to be pruned by you, you're bringing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to reign in our hearts instead of our selfish desires. And so, Lord, let us not, let us embrace that pruning process and Lord, believe you for fruit. And Lord, we pray that you would bring fruit to our church. We pray that there would be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness going out from our body to the people around us. We pray that people would see that and like Paul was praying for the Israelites, that people would repent, they would come to you, they would embrace you and surrender their lives. Father, you had your son speak the words that said that the world is gonna hate this message because it doesn't give them what they want. Father, help us to love this message, to sing your praise. We pray. Amen.